Welcome back, Rebels. I'm angry. Oh, no. what What's happened? Um, I'm angry and I'm upset. And this is a first. We I've never called anyone out on this podcast before, but um, I've, I've seen something recently and it's, it's really annoying me. I don't know if you've been getting on YouTube, have you been getting ads for Founder? I've been getting ads for Founder for years now. So currently I've got, I don't know her name, there's an Australian woman. Like she's been selling stuff on Amazon and it's made her a millionaire, like multiple millionaire. And these adverts are specifically designed to trigger people who may be struggling. Even even if you're just like lazy and you just want to get money for nothing, which like... It sounds like everyone a dream does. of ev- yeah. Yeah, everyone just like sitting at home and, and getting that that quote unquote passive income. There, there's like there's a bunch of them and they all annoy me and and like I would expect something more from Founder Magazine. Like honestly, I would think that someone like Founder Magazine would be wanting to work with us, but yet they're not. They're they're going for this like get rich quick scheme because I guess it it generates revenue. I mean, this is this, this generates revenue, like playing on people's fears and insecurities is powerful. And so they're going to make a load of money for it because basically they're selling courses. Yeah. So this woman comes on and she says, this is Nathan and he has been, he's made seven figures selling magnetic eyelashes. Now I guarantee you, Nathan does not care about magnetic eyelashes. Nathan does not feel like that's his purpose in the world or that he's bringing joy or that he's spreading anything. It's like basically what she is advocating and what Founder Magazine by association are advocating is that you find a cheap product that is made somewhere for very little money and you build a website and a brand in order to flip that product and make yourself wealthy. It's disgusting. It really really upsets me because there is there is no purpose other than getting the founder rich there is and i mean that in both sense the founder that that does the business and founder magazine there is <laughs> there is no there is no purpose there is no trying to make the world a better place than you found it it is literally just a cash grab and i i truly believe that anyone taking that course i don't think that it's going to breed all of these new millionaires of, of if a no. thousand people sign up. And I think also with those courses as well, there's a lot with um, drop shipping and anything that seems like get rich quick, basically. Those things are, yes, yes, you can make seven figures in a year, but you're probably also spending the seven figures in a year to get that because your profit margins are so small. If you ever see something come up on YouTube or anywhere that's like they show you the actual monetary statistics of this is how much my Shopify account has made over the past six months, I've made $168,000. It's like, yes, you did. But you probably also didn't make much profit on that. No one ever shows you the profit. They just show you what they turn over. And there's a huge difference between that. If I wanted to run a seven-figure business and start one tomorrow, I basically just have to go and buy loads of things and sell them for the same price. If I did that, I could just, I wouldn't lose anything. It would just be wasting a lot of my time. But I could turn over that amount of money. Well, like, we, no we, gets- run, we run a million-pound business. Like that's yeah, a we fact. We, we yeah. literally run a million pound business. Neither <laughs> yeah. of us are millionaires. Exactly. Because it all comes down to the profit. They pray on the fact they don't tell you the complete truth. But yeah, you're completely right there. The tactics they use to get there generally sell crap to people that don't need stuff. And it's not a purposeful way to do business. It's not a great thing for the planet. When you're starting a business, a lot of people start it because they're working in jobs they dislike and they think working for themselves is this brilliant thing that they'd really, really love to do. And then it's like, well, 
you're now working for something that's probably more stressful than your previous job. It's not actually bringing in that much money and you're just peddling crap. Like you don't, you don't want to be doing that. There's no drive in there. And if you think that leaving your job to work for yourself is a good idea, then you need to do it in a way that's going to bring purpose to you. Otherwise, you're just going to get fed up with it. You're going to hate it. And it's going to get into a stage where you're like, why the hell did I quit my job to have a more stressful time doing something that I equally don't care about? Like quite often I think, oh, that's a good idea. I could make some money doing that. But then I'm like, well, I don't want to be doing that. So like, yes, I could do it. Just because you can do something, it doesn't mean that you should. And we've interviewed millionaires on this show who have made their millions doing something they don't care about and it just left them feeling empty. Yeah. And it, it does, it always sounds stupid to say because you go, oh, woe is me, you, you've made all of this money. But really, I mean, the, the stories are, there's really no one who ever says like, yeah, I made all this money and it made me really, really happy. Like it yeah. can bring you some pleasure. It definitely can bring you some pleasure. And that can be really kind of addictive in a way. But it is it really when you talk to those people, they all have this this kind of one moment of this awakening where all of a sudden they realise like this is not it. This is not making me happy. Yeah. It's just making me money. Yeah. So I think whenever you do start something, it's like you need to start with purpose and and I think one of the best ways to have something that is fulfilling and brings you purpose is to have something that helps other people and benefits the world in some way. If you can benefit someone else, like the internal rewards from that are so high. It's one of the reasons why we do this show. It's like the amount of times you guys drop us DMs and be like, thank you so much for putting out this content because you've really helped me. You've changed my life. I've quit my job because of you. I'm now doing this thing that makes me more happy. Even when it's hard, even when we've got so much to do, it's like we know we're working towards a greater cause. And if you can find that greater cause at the start, it makes things so much easier going forwards. A hundred percent, man. Like we get in a big gig for like Apple or Adobe, like podcast related. And it's like, oh, cool. That keeps the lights on. That means we can continue making the podcast. But that's not that, that's not what spurs us on. It's like it's the yeah. DMs. It's the feedback. It's it's doing Patreon calls with people and like seeing that light bulb go off in their head. It's all of those things that keep us going. It's it's our purpose. Um, and I'm I, yeah, and I'm sorry to get like really passionate and and for the first time like call like literally call someone out and and be. It's like I never want to be negative. I never want to like shit on what people are doing. But I, but we've got to be realistic. And there's there's so much bad business out there and and underhanded lying ta- like tactics and techniques and it's like it doesn't have to be that way like yeah. good business is really important yeah i think like the aim of this show isn't just to help you start a business doing something it's to help you be happy and i think you you find happiness through having a purpose and through working towards that that purpose can be so small as well it can be yeah making deli- making a delicious meal for someone it can be like yeah. having people enjoy your food it, it can be brightening up someone's day by them hanging your artwork on their wall it can, like like whatever it is it can be really small it doesn't have to be i'm gonna rid the oceans of plastic that is also a great thing to be working towards, but but like work out what it is that that sets you on fire that you can gather other people around you that feel that yeah. way too. Yeah, it's like how can you leave the world better than you found it? Like that's such a phrase that I love so much. And if you can spend your life and contribute more than you consume, then I think that's that's the way to go. 
Yeah, so this episode is in partnership with the Good Business Festival, obviously, because that's what we've been talking about is is good business. Um, again, this is something that we're just passionate about. We're not being paid to um, to promote those guys, but we do think it would be really helpful for all of our listeners if they uh, attend at least some of the events that they've got going on. And registration for Act 1 of the Good Business Festival is now open. So if you head to thegoodbusinessfestival.com, you'll be able to register for free there and uh, see everything that they've got going on. And this episode, this is one of my favourite episodes. Yeah, recording this was so much fun. Like just such an interesting, great conversation that we get so passionate. Like it's such a good episode. We're so like fired up in it. And hopefully that will kind of like resonate into you guys as well. Yes, so this episode is with the amazing, incredible Rebecca Henderson. Rebecca Henderson is an author, economist, and a professor at Harvard Business School. Rebecca's book, Reimagining Capitalism, lays out why the current state of business is not sustainable in a world that is literally on fire. The book shows that purpose-driven business is not only possible, but that those who adopt it are actually more successful. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, David. Um, and hi, Adam. It's great to meet you. Welcome to the show. It was nice to meet you. So, Rebecca, for, let's start with real basics, because um, as we did explain to you off mic, we are a pair of morons. Um, what <laughs> is capitalism and why should we reimagine it? Capitalism is, is an economic system in which productive assets, so shops, houses, factories, things people use to make other things, mostly belong to individuals and not to the state or not to a big man. Why should we reimagine it? Because currently it's a mess. Um, It's not working. It's really not working. Um, Earlier this spring, right before the pandemic started, we asked the thousand students in the first year of the Harvard Harvard Business School class, is capitalism working? And actually, we asked them, is capitalism broken? And half of them said yes. I mean, when you have half the students at the Harvard Business School saying capitalism is broken, that's like a clue that something is really wrong. And uh, I mean, if we just tick off what's wrong, let's see, we're trashing the planet, not dealing with climate change. We have massive inequality where there's been a bunch of productivity growth, but all the money is going to the top 1%. And everyone else is increasingly finding it difficult to hold it together. We have, we've had for a hundred years, maybe longer, huge levels of racial exclusion, which aren't going away. And, and just for fun, we have institutional breakdown and populist leaders coming into power saying, democracy, who needs democracy? Immigrants, who needs immigrants? Climate change, who needs climate change? I mean, they're not dealing, our governments are not dealing with the problems we're facing. And so we just have massive, massive problems. I mean, sometimes people say to me, you know, the book is called Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. And I I finished it this time last year. So people say to me, well, how did you know? You know, I'm like, it was pretty obvious. (laughs) The world's on fire. We've got to change what we're doing. So I suppose there are elements to capitalism that are absolutely brilliant and great. Um, And within that system, a lot of people have managed to accrue so much, but then it's not filtering down. And then we're left with 
those that are less well off are, are really suffering under this system? Suffering horribly. I mean, there's far too many people who have to work two jobs to hold things together and don't have health care and don't have any time off. I mean, it's, it's awful what's happening. And I think the pandemic has really highlighted that. You know, the so-called essential workers, these are the people we really rely on. Well, but we don't pay them decently and they don't have health care and they can't take time off if they're sick. You know? So... Um, so your remark, well, surely there are some things in capitalism that work brilliantly. I can hear this lovely undertone of cynicism underneath, <laughs> as in, oh, come on, Rebecca, shouldn't we just throw the whole thing out the window? So, <laughs> so let me tell you what I think, in theory, capitalism does really very well. And that is, if you want to make stuff and make it cheaply, and make lots of different kinds of stuff, like you want 25 different kinds of toothpaste in all sorts of flavors, and you want them cheap, capitalism is the answer. I mean, capitalism just brilliant. And, you know, here I'm going to sound like a kind of full-throated neoclassical weirdo, but the free market, the idea that nobody tells you what to do, you look around and you see what people need and you set up a company and you try and make it. And if people like it, they give you money and then you get bigger. And if they don't like it, you go out of business. I mean, that whole business about genuinely free competition and real prices, I'm a huge fan. And I think to be fair, and you know, if one of my friends from finance were on the podcast, he'd say, Rebecca, remember to say, you know, a hundred years ago, everyone is eating turnips. And, you know, what gave us cell phones and vaccines and air conditioning and aeroplanes is basically capitalism. So, so you know, I, I sometimes say, you know, capitalism is the greatest economic system the human race ever invented. And free markets are this incredible source of prosperity and innovation. But then we have to put an asterisk on it. So, so let me talk about the asterisks. Here's the issue. Capitalism is fundamentally about making things. It's about the creation part. It, it's not about the distribution part, or at least classical economics didn't worry about distribution. The problem they were trying to solve is how do we get everybody fed and get everyone lots of toothpaste? For raw capitalism, inequality is a feature, not a bug. Because suppose that you guys are just fabulous at what you do, which I kind of suspect is actually the case. And that's great, <laughs> right? You're producing a service that people really want and they're really excited about and it gets, lots of, gets bigger and you get rich. And that's a feature. We want you to get rich because that means you do the energy and the time and the angst of setting these things up, which I know you know, and my mother was an entrepreneur, so I know you know, it's like super hard work. So, you know, the, the idea that successful entrepreneurs should get rich is, is kind of okay. But the people who sort of pushed free markets now and forever forgot a couple of really important things. One is if you just let the free market run on its own, it will destroy everything around it. It will make a few people really rich. It will push wages right down to the bottom. And if you let it trash the environment, it will. Because like, why should I care about climate change if it's not gonna make me any money? I'll just use, you know, I'll burn the fossil fuels. I'll send the stuff out the smokestack. I don't care. That's the nature of the market. And what I call real capitalism or 
you know, sometimes people say, I shouldn't have called my book Reimagining Capitalism. I should have called it Back to the Capitalism of the 50s and 60s, only without the racism and the misogyny. But, you know, like, cap let's call it a, a capitalism that works for everyone. Capitalism that works for everyone. How do you get that? You've got to balance the free market with a strong, capable, democratically accountable government and a strong civil society. So that's a free press, independent judiciary, some kind of voice for labor. Because a, we know from the research that strong and prosperous societies rest on three foundations, that these three pillars to the stool, you know, legs to the stool, whatever you want to call them, but government has to balance the free market and civil society has to hold them both in check. It, it, anything, you get too much of anything, it gets out of hand, right? You give everything to the government and you get, you know, Stalinism or, you know, not, not a good idea or what Putin has in Russia, really a bad idea. It's, it's, it has to be in balance. And we've let our capitalism get so far out of balance. There have to be rules. There have to be things like minimum wages. There have to be redistributive taxation, <laughs> you know. So it's not that capitalism is a huge mistake. At least I don't think so. I think the free market has a really important role to play. But it's like having a tiger and the tiger has to be on a leash and it has to be constrained and balanced by the rest of the society. So what can people like us do to positively impact capitalism? Because it seems to me like it's something that the government needs to be able to control. Or Jeff Bezos, yeah. Yeah, or Jeff Bezos. Is there anything that we can do as individuals to help move things in a more positive direction? Sure, there's tons of things that we can do as individuals. Because here's the thing, powerful people never gave up power voluntarily. Sitting around waiting for Jeff Bezos to fix things, and I, I do not know Mr. Bezos, and he may be a great guy, but it, it's just not gonna happen, you know? And, uh, and so what do we need? We need a massive political and cultural and social movement that says we love capitalism, but we need some controls. And that means electing governments that will actually put controls on the corporations. And so um, that's a huge part of it. It's a major political movement. So the first thing, when people say to me, what can I do? I say, vote, 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 vote. Vote for politicians who understand this problem and are up for sensible ways to fix it. And what kind of things can we look for that a politician would be saying that would show that they're in, they're promoting that kind of movement? The politicians you want are, I think, focused on pragmatic solutions to real problems rather than large-scale rhetoric. So exactly how are we going to address inequality? And it doesn't have to be like detailed policies, but you want to find someone who's talking about serious investments in education and health, someone who's talking about uh, real labor regulations, so you can't push working conditions right to the bottom, steady schedules, basic minimum wage, decent health and, um, and leave policies. You need someone who's talking about, I think, some kind of labor representation so that you get a voice at the firm where you work. It doesn't have to be a conventional union, could be a works council. There are other ways of doing it. 
Um, I'm a huge fan of what I describe in the book as high road labor strategies. So here's a high road labor strategy. You treat the people that work for you with dignity and respect. You give them the tools you need and you let them make the decisions as much as you can. Now, that doesn't sound so radical, right? But we have a lot of evidence that firms that are run that way are more productive and more creative. But a lot of managers don't like it because you have to pay more attention. You have to invest for the longer term. You have to get emotionally engaged because you're, you're treating your people as human beings. And so politicians who understand that and understand that the goal is to build those kinds of firms. So for me, that's one big thing I look for. Another big thing I look for is environment, because I'm a, a climate nut. I'm a full-on tree hugger. I think if we don't <laughs> fix climate, everything else sort of gets academic, because we're just going to get waves of accelerating crises that are going to make it really hard to fix everything else. So I'm looking for someone who's like, okay, we got to do something about climate change, and we've got to do it in a way that creates jobs, that um, builds a strong society. I mean, the economics of climate change are overwhelming. You make a little investment now to avoid horrible problems later on. So it, are there politicians who understand that? I can talk that through and get buy-in. Um, but almost any politician who, who isn't dealing in the politics of hate and fear who is trying to build, I think, a world. I mean, we have all this technology and all these resources. We are so rich. I mean, by the standards of our grandparents, even of our parents, you know, we have so much and yet we're making such a mess of it. So can we find a way that, that's more of a, a common ground? I mean, and that brings me to the other thing that I think we can do as, as individuals. We can work this in the places where we work. So, you know, I tell some stories in the book um, and it's tempting to rely, you know, say, oh, the CEO has to get this. But every CEO I've really met got it because some employee was working the problem and showing that it was possible to do things differently and do things in a different way. And the CEO said, well, that's pretty interesting. You know, could we run that out across the whole firm? Um, I talk in the book about a guy called Michael, Michel Legens, who had the thrilling job. I know you're just so jealous of being brand manager for Lipton Tea. And, uh, you know, it's not a big job. But he worked with the friends at work. He said, you know, we have to do this more sustainably. They worked it for two years before they took the project to senior management and, and finally got, got buy-in. And then, you know, he was working for Unilever and there's a lot of fuss about Unilever and Unilever is indeed a great company and the CEO is very much on the wavelength. But, but how did it get that way? It got that way because a lot of people on the ground saw that there was an opportunity to do things differently. So I think it's another thing we can do as employees. I mean, when you look at Amazon and Mr. Bezos, you know, he has employees saying, you know, we want you to pay a decent wage. We want you to care about the environment. And that's really helping to shift that firm. Because didn't Walmart do something similar previously? <laughs> so, uh, so I'm a huge fan of Walmart. When I first came back from Bentonville, where they're based, I started raving to my son about what an amazing company I thought they were and how they were making so much difference on climate. And my son, who's 24, looked at me and said, um, Mum, I'll believe you because you're my mum, but nobody else will. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, Walmart has a super checkered history, and I, I really understand that. 
but they were they very early on understood that uh, this thing it's so easy to say that it's possible to do the right thing and make money you know do well and do good yeah but that that actually is sometimes true and it's true a lot more often than people think um, it, it's one of those things if you're looking only to make profits sometimes you miss the opportunity to do the right thing and end up in a place where you make money and do the right thing at the same time. And so Walmart was hit um, by Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. And, uh, you know, another a huge storm. Let's talk climate change. Massive storm. And um, the CEO of Walmart at the time said this incredibly revolutionary thing. He said, let's not talk about the budget. Let's just send whatever we have that people need. And I've spoken to people who were on that phone call and they said like their jaws dropped. You know, this is Walmart. Let's not talk about the budget. I mean, what? Um, but the CEO really, for a bunch of reasons we can talk about, decided he really wanted to do the right thing when the, the hurricane hit. So they ended up sending thousands of trucks and spending millions of dollars and really trying to help out with food and water and so on. And, uh, and what they discovered is, whoa, people loved it. So there was this huge PR benefit, but, but a more fundamental benefit is employees felt fabulous about working for the company. And, and that hadn't always been the case before that. And having your employees really excited about what you're doing and what kind of company you are just makes a huge difference. I mean, I have this great friend called Zainab Ton at MIT who has a book called The Good Jobs Strategy. And she's worked with a bunch of firms which have really been, you know, trying to treat their employees with dignity and respect and give them the tools they need and, and let them rip. And, and you see these amazing results. I really think we're at a moment where if we could just change the way we think about business and about what we're about and move away. We've, I hope this isn't true for you guys, but for so many people, we've let ourselves get stuck in. It's about me right now. And the best way to maximize profits is to think about me right now. And that's how I should run my life. And it's, it's cultural, yeah. it's economic, it's political, is disastrous. I mean, all the great faith traditions say, you know, me right now, not terribly skillful way to run your life. You know, even if what you care about is me right now, it's not very skillful. I mean, you come into a bunch of people and you say, okay, I'm so glad you work for me. My job is to make as much money as I can for me and this investor, and I'm going to get as much out of you as I can, as hard as I can. I mean, like, like no, <laughs> you know? And it also shuts down your vision. I think when you're only focusing on profits, you don't see what's out there. I mean, what Walmart found is they could save literally billions of dollars. I mean, I've seen the numbers, billions of numbers by reducing energy use, which, which is, you know, total win-win. I mean, they, they cut emissions by, I'm going to get this number wrong, but it's like 30 or 40%. And it was entirely on a net, uh, net present value positive basis. Sorry, bit of technical, entirely making money while doing so, <laughs> you know. Um, and I, I've come across so many stories like that, that I, I know it's real. But we, we've talked ourselves into this kind of black, dark place where we kind of mistrust each other, we don't want to work together, we don't think we can do the right thing. Of course we can do the right thing. Of course we can. This is the thing. So the book is littered with these stories of people who are are doing the right thing and they're seeing the results. And, and not only are they seeing the results in terms of like 
their their cutting emissions or anything like that but but you kind of lay out how the direct results are on profits dramatically increasing through doing these things but do you still do you, because this is such a, a big picture problem do you still come across people who are sort of quite dismissive and just say that you're crazy straight off the bat of like all the because time. we're so entrenched in the system all yeah. the time david all the time and part of it is you know good old-fashioned cynicism rebecca you've just cherry-picked the good stories you know tell me about the times it didn't work actually i don't know many times it didn't work <laughs> Mostly yeah. when people look for this, they find it. And there are a few. And of course, you, it's not possible all the time. And you have to be sensible. I always tell my students, you know, you cannot crash the company. You, know, you have to run a company and it has to make a good product and you have to make profits. Otherwise, you don't get to play. But um, no, I meet people all the time who say, I just don't believe it. And it, it reminds me. It reminds me of working with Kodak. You know, this is, this is something I, I, I also talk about in the book. I spent the first 20 years of my life as the Kodak professor, not of my life. Oh, my God, what's my subconscious telling me? <laughs> I spent the first 20 years of my professional career uh, teaching at MIT as the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management. And I don't know if you remember Kodak, but, but Kodak dominated conventional film-based photography. People said of them, there is nothing more profitable that's legal. I mean, it was an incredibly successful firm. But then digital photography happened to them. And uh, the fact that I was the Kodak professor was a complete coincidence. But what I studied, all my pointy-headed academic research, was about large firms who could kind of see the world was changing but really didn't want to change. Yeah. And it was just a hoot I was the Kodak professor. I actually was work, I worked with Kodak, but I worked with firms like Nokia. I mean, many people don't even remember what Nokia was, but in their time, they were making a million cell phones a week. They were the most successful company anyone had ever seen. And I spent like six months of my life in Finland trying to persuade them that Apple really was a threat. You know, I'm one of the world's experts on why it's so hard to understand the world is shifting. So, David, the way I think about this is, is the world is kind of stuck in a massive Kodak moment. We sort of thought we could just let the free market rip, just focus on profits and everything would work out great. And of course, the people who did best under that regime, they're the ones that have the hardest time giving up the idea that, it, that it's going to work. Yeah. So, you know, I, I remember des describing my PhD thesis to a taxi driver once. And, uh, and so it was a long taxi ride. And he said at the end, so he said, let me get this straight. You got a PhD from Harvard for finding out that large firms get fat and lazy and have trouble changing. I was like, yeah, yeah, but it's much more complicated than that. And I sort of feel like this about, about this thing, which is, you know, you go out into most people and you say, you know, do you think capitalism is working? And people go, no. I mean, look, but, but the people who have the money, the people who are running firms, it's still working for them. So I think it's hard to let go. It's hard to think that, you know, I should be looking to try and create social and environmental good when I make profits. It sounds like a lot of work. It sounds like some kind of hippy dippy stuff. Um, and why should I do that? The, the quantitative data is getting pretty good. 
um, the idea that the firms who are looking in this direction do better, have less risk, can recruit better people. Um, so, so no one should be dismissive out of hand. But yeah, I miss it. I, I meet it all the time. People want to just work for a certain amount of time and then kind of sit back and think, I've done my time now and now it's going to be easy. And I think people need to get into more of the mindset of, you need to keep working forever. Like things are always going to change. Like you can never predict the future. If you think of like social media is a really good example. Facebook eight years ago was a rapidly growing, amazing thing that everyone was on. And then it's now like, I can't remember the last time I logged onto Facebook. Like it's been so long now because there's other platforms that have popped up. And it's like, if you want to be relevant and keep growing and not, kind of get destroyed by someone else you have to evolve you have to see what the market is you have to really focus on what people are doing at all levels of the market not just at your top tier because otherwise you're going to get left behind like a kodak what is it do you think that makes people the ones that do change change and the ones that don't change not change like what's the difference between those two they're interested in something more than money they're interested in their yeah. customers or the product they're making or the firm they're trying to build. They're interested in the world. And if you're interested in the world, if you can keep your sense of curiosity, then you change because it's interesting and fun. You know, people used to think that older people learnt less fast, were worse at leading teams. I mean, there was all this kind of oh, old people get stuck and just, you know, let's put them in a corner and they should fall over sideways. And, and I, I must admit, I'm kind of getting old, so I have, you know, I'm motivated reasoning in saying this. But the data suggests that's absolutely not true. That if you keep engaged and if you keep interested, you're much more likely to be, yes, financially and professionally successful, but much happier, um, have much better relationships. And, and so... You know, I, I, I call that purpose and having a purpose in the world, and that sounds kind of grandiose, but what I really mean is the people who are resilient and keep changing are interested in more than the number. The number is sterile. I mean, we all need money, don't get me wrong. I'm very privileged to have a great job and a steady job, and that's fantastic. But it, it, it doesn't really make you happy. I mean, my HBS classmates, I'm a HBS class of 85. I have some classmates who are super rich. And there is no correlation between money and happiness. I mean, the classmates I know who are truly happy are those that built their own firms. And they keep doing it. They keep building new firms. Um, and they're so totally excited about it. Because, you know, one of my closest friends from business school, and this is more than 30 years ago now, so it's kind of embarrassing. You know, he's a serial entrepreneur and the last firm that he founded is, um, is putting doctors into small-scale emergency rooms. So using telemedicine to get the latest doctor into small emergency rooms in small towns and villages. And he's just high on it, you know? It's like... You're in this tiny little emergency room and there's someone with COVID and you can turn on the computer and you've got the latest medical research right there. And yeah, I'm sure it will make him some money, but that's not why he's doing it, you know? And, and oh, now, I, now I sound preachy, but, but yeah, that's what really strikes me is the older I get, the more I notice the happier people are those that are engaged in the world. And So I suppose yeah. 
on that note then, sooner you can find your purpose, the better. And how would you say to someone if they don't have a purpose, that how, they, how could they find one or oh. develop one? So sometimes people come to me and they're like, oh, I don't know what my purpose is. I gotta know my purpose. You know, I should go off on a retreat. I should do journaling. Um, sure, those are all good things. But I think it's also important to start right where you are. You know, suppose you're waiting tables because you haven't worked out quite what business you want to start. Um, how can you make that a better experience for the people who come in? For you, how can you build relationships? How can that, now I'm really making this up, but how can this cafe become a place where people start to talk about what's going on and build bridges? What can you do where, right where you stand? Because typically you discover your purpose because you discover I'm passionate about it. Am I passionate about pets? Am I passionate about the fact that many kids nowadays are getting terrible education because we're in the middle of this horrible mess? Can I do anything about that? Um, it has to be concrete. I will confess that for the first 20 years of my life, I didn't have a purpose. And the next 10, I didn't really either. I just wanted a decent job that, that paid well and was kind of interesting. And um, so, you know, so I'm not a great one to give lectures on this. But, but I think a lot of people are in that same situation. It's like, yeah. mo I think most people don't come out of school and have a purpose and want to change the world. I think most people do exactly that because we're brought up in a society that tells us that you need to, you need to leave school, go and get a job that's going to earn you lots of money. No one talks about you need to leave school and go and make the world a better place. No, well, now we do actually, but... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but at least at, at the 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 MBA, we're telling the students like this this is a key moment. You need to do something. But I'm with you. I mean, when I graduated, no one said a whisker to me about making a difference or having a purpose. And you know, I I had a family and I was making a living and I was I, I think I was doing a, a pretty decent job. But I didn't think about purpose. Um, but as I got older and I saw more issues in the world there were problems I saw that I just couldn't sit quiet. And I, I think that's what you want to look for, is what is it that makes you say, I, I, I can't sit quiet. Um, and, and the good news is if you're someone like me and you, you got yourself a good job and you're in a good position, you have all kinds of resources and networks and ability uh, to make it, to, to really you know, do something that will make a difference and that will make you feel great. So I always feel like then if you were looking to find your purpose and you don't know what it is yet and it hasn't, it's not around you, then you need to put yourself in lots of situations that can make that happen. Because it was like, you, as you said there, it wasn't until later in your life you found it after you'd gone through enough experiences to get there. So I think if people are looking for that, maybe it's good to put yourself in scenarios that you've not been in before, in places that you don't feel comfortable or just, just keep looking around and keeping like being open-minded to what's on offer. So Adam, I, I love that. And I think that's certainly part of the answer. And so maybe trying different jobs or trying volunteering or different things on the weekend. But I've known a lot of people who discovered their purpose by just talking to the people at work and finding out that they weren't financially stable or that they couldn't you know, had horrible health problems or someone in their family um, was addicted to opioids. You know, I, so many of the people I know found their purpose when they started really looking at the people they were working with 
and thinking about how do we make this place to work that works for everyone. Um, and you know, most workspaces, I mean, unless you're working for some amazing, amazing firm and money is raining on it and it's fully purpose-driven, I mean, most firms are not much fun and most people are having a really hard time. And again, that's not for everyone, right? I, I'm just saying a lot of the people I've met that focusing concretely on, you know, why does Mary seem so unhappy and how can I make this job, you know, better for her is, uh, is, is a surprisingly amazing place to start. So what are the, the um, results you've noticed from purpose-driven businesses? What, once once a, a business finds that purpose and, and is able to kind of rally their staff around what their, what their kind of North Star is, what are the, the results that you've noticed from that? People are happier. It's great to know that you're not only making a paycheck, but there's something larger coming out of this. Even if it's just customers feel much better about your product. Um, you know, there are a thousand ways to have a purpose that's not just about making money. And people feel typically so much happier when they know that what they're doing is actually making a difference in someone's life. Um, so happiness, engagement. So in an authentically purpose-driven company, and of course there are lots where people are just spouting a lot of garbage, but firms where people really mean it, then you engage people in, okay, if this is our purpose, how are we gonna get there? And, and people love that, right? To have someone say, well, what do you think we can do differently? And how can we make a difference here? Once you have that sense of, okay, this is where we're trying to go, and I really value what you say, and you can contribute, you can get that old-fashioned positive flywheel going. And so you get a lot more creativity, a lot more engagement. People will work harder and longer if they're working on a project that they helped create and that they think is going to do something useful. I mean, so many businesses are shot through with so much garbage. Why are Dilbert cartoons funny? Because so many businesses are like that. If you can really become authentically purpose-driven and you really treat people with dignity and respect, it's like, I spent 20 years in windowless conference rooms trying to make this result go away, but here it is. In every industry, the most productive firms are more than twice as productive as the least. Same capital equipment, same number of people, same products. I mean, every control you can think of. We spent years trying to get rid of this result because economists hated it because it meant that some firms are much better managed than others, but that's really the case. And it's not just marginal. It's like 100% better. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying you can go into work tomorrow and say, oh, we're going to have a purpose. Like, let's, you know, make with the program. Absolutely not. One of the reasons purpose gives you such strong results is it takes time to build. You have to demonstrate that you really mean it, that you're willing to make investments in it, that when things go wrong, you'll stay the course and follow through, that when there are people who act up, you'll deal with it in a respectful and fair way. A purpose-driven firm doesn't mean love one another right now. There's still tough decisions to be made. Um, you know, I sometimes say that, that running a purpose-driven firm, you have to be kind of schizophrenic. You have to be authentic, emotionally av available, engaged with the world, creative, visionary, check, 
and a ruthless business person who understands the bottom line, knows where the money is, is tracking the, the data, is talking to customers, is in touch. You, you have to do both. But if you can do both, it, it's like moving from a Chevy to a Maserati. It's so much more fun and it becomes self-reinforcing. Customers like it, suppliers like it, turnover drops, profits rise. <laughs> um, not all the time, not in every industry. Again, this is not a magic ticket to riches, but it's absolutely a viable way to run a business. And it's so much more satisfying. And, and let me just put an asterisk on this. And if we have more firms like this, we might fix capitalism. It comes down to kind of what you were saying earlier about how if you do like a small impact now, can make a huge difference down the line. Because it's like, if you're starting something now and you start it with a purpose, everyone who gets on board in that company knows what the purpose is and they can add to it. Whereas I suppose if you're changing a huge company, you might, the CEO might be like, hey, this is our purpose. But then 80% of the staff might be like, well, I don't care about that. That's not something that I want to drive towards. So yeah, it seems like you might as well just do it at the start. If you're starting anything, get people believing what you believe and then it will make things easier down the road. So Adam, I love it. And I'm officially saying there's no way you're an idiot. You got us or a moron, got to stop <laughs> saying that. You could, you could be giving this talk. Absolutely. Much easier if you start at the beginning, much harder to change a very large company. We have a few examples, but it's super hard. If it grows and everyone who joins the company kind of gets the idea and drinks the Kool-Aid and buy, buys in, absolutely agree. There's just one little difference I would make to what you said. You said you have to get everyone to agree to what you believe. Nah. You have to develop something that everybody believes. So, you know, it's so tempting when you're CEO to think that you have all the answers. There's uh, one great guy I met recently called uh, Ken Harper. He runs a lumber company in Maine. Have you heard of this guy? Amazing. And uh, he lost his voice. He had a condition. He was the CEO. He had a condition where he lost his voice. And suddenly he couldn't talk all the time. So he said, I, I just got the chance to talk to him a couple of days ago. Um, so, so he said, okay, every time someone asks me a question, I ask them a question back. He said, I was amazed. People would come in and say, I have problem X, what should I do? And, and he would say, what do you think? And they would tell him and he'd say, well, go do that. <laughs> do that. <laughs> <laughs> he said the company's starting yeah. to run much better. So, so all I'm saying is I really mean it about this empowerment distributed decision making. Not that the CEO's, CEO isn't super important. I mean, they really are. They have to set the tone. They have to make the tough decisions in the end when, when you know, people disagree. But it's not about I have a vision. You know, here it is. It's about I have a vision. What do you think? You know, how do you think we should run this? And um, at least that's my sense. And I think that's why some people are scared of doing it because it's so much easier just to say, I have a vision, you answer the phone, you know? And <laughs> <laughs> um, so something that's, that's running around my mind, when you, when you mentioned about sort of, as soon as we, we get this purpose, then we find happiness. And I think we could solve so many problems behind the, because we're, we're in this system of, of kind of churning because we're made to feel 
unhappy by the media and we're made to feel that certain goods and services are going to alleviate that happiness and we and I feel that as soon as I, I feel like as you maybe it's a getting older thing I, I I guess some people never cotton onto it but I'm certainly at the stage in my life now where I I'm to a degree off of that treadmill of realizing that it's it's not purchasing that purchasing brings me pleasure yes it does and I do enjoy the things that I buy but it doesn't bring happiness and I think as soon as we if we can communicate that then maybe we might be able to really do a significant dent of because if we're not buying the stuff that we don't need because we don't need it to feel happy then we're going to be damaging we're going to be using less resources and so on and so forth David I'm so so with you I mean we talked about what you can do as a voter and what you can do as a business person or an employee but I think you're going to something really important which is what can we do as human beings as so, I don't know what the right word is, citizens, neighbors, and part of that's consumers and part of that's consuming less. And yeah, when I said people get happy, it's not like instantaneous happiness, like, like taking some kind of happy gas. It's that when you stop looking to buying things for happiness and start looking to people and trying to solve tough problems and building relationships and real experiences, it's just a much more satisfying way to live your life. And, you know, I, 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 the only reason I feel comfortable saying this is like 2,000 years of human wisdom have said this. I mean, we kind of know this. I mean, I'm in the sort of spiritual, not religious camp. So, you know, and I say this in, in my book, I'm, a, I'm a, a Buddhist and a, a practicing Buddhist, but, you know, I'm not big in and one of the reasons I'm a Buddhist is they're not big in rituals and, you know, you have to believe this set of 10 impossible things and, and so on. But the idea that there's something much more important going on than just how much pleasure you're getting right now and that connecting with that is sort of what we're here for. I really believe that. And, and David, I think you're exactly right. If we could help shift our society and each other in that direction, it would make a huge difference. Because um, we're just burning through stuff, right? And throwing the stuff in the ocean. And... So yes, I'm, I'm usually a little nervous talking about this kind of stuff because I am an economist and an engineer. But <laughs> um, This is a safe space. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just so clear. Right? We're so unhappy. Um, there's this wonderful statistic that you map happiness against income. And there's yeah. one group that's way above that curve. I don't know if you've seen this. But there's one group that they have relatively low incomes, but they're super happy. And it's actually South American countries. <laughs> you know? Much tighter family ties. And, and in this country, there's this really strange thing which is that people of, when I say this country, forgive me, in the US, people of color face massive discrimination, less wealth, lower incomes, all kinds of horrible life circumstances, but they're much happier for their circumstances than many white people. And I mean, no one's exactly sure why, but for example, they commit suicide at much lower rates. Um, and what's that about? And some of it's about, I think, feeling that you're part of a much larger whole, both family, but the whole struggle that you're in and feeling that you have a much broader goal and being constantly reminded that it's not the stuff that makes us happy. Yeah, my my only worry is that, so through this podcast and, and conversations like this one, 
I I feel extremely like uplifted and positive about about the future. But then after I come off the call and I go about living my daily life, I start to feel like we're so vastly outnumbered of we're we're the small minority that that feel like change is possible and we're preaching it and we're telling people but it, it just feels like there's so many deaf ears that aren't trying to hear this message and I don't I, I suppose that's that's a big problem that needs to be solved but I don't know other than continually making podcast episodes I don't know what to do about it it's hard isn't it because um, I feel like with like with buying something that's easy and people like to do something that is easy to get that happiness reward. Whereas if you say to someone, you're going to have to go out of your way and help lots of people and it's going to take up a lot of your time, people are, oh, oh that sounds like a lot of effort. And they, they almost don't believe it's true and because you don't believe it's true until you've actually gone to do it. And I think right. that's where it's like, we feel like we're almost unlocked from the matrix in a way. Whereas we've gone out of our way, we've helped people. And then you see the absolute happiness and joy and fulfillment that brings you. And you just want everyone else to have that. And yeah. I think it is, it's pushing over that barrier of just that little bit of hard work to actually get there, to go and help some people to do something that's positive for the world. Yeah. And then it's, you, you have to go and do it. Like if you sit there and you just think, oh, I can't be bothered to go and do that. You're never going to be happy. Like you need to force that. And it's, yeah, pushing yourself over that edge. So yes, yes, yes. And it's so easy to give in to despair. Because, yeah, I sometimes feel like I took the pill and I feel better and more alive and more connected, but I also feel more desperate mm. because I see what's yeah. going on. And we're in a really bad place. And it's really, really tough. So a couple of thoughts. First, the reason I say start where you are see what you can do with the people you work with is because it's low, lower threshold and it's right there and it really makes a difference. And, and you've got to get, I mean, what you're talking about is exactly, Adam, you've got to get it moving to get something positive back and then you feel better and you want to do more. Like exercise, right? If you've never exercised, yeah. the whole idea seems awful. And once you start doing it, you feel fabulous and so you keep doing it. And so at work... Um, I think politics is important. That is, you know, having like a reading group with people who also think the world is a mess and like, what could we do concretely? And how do we get involved? And what do we do? Your idea about have different experiences and, and see that there's something you can fix, like whether it's the pet shelter or the, um, the school buses. I have a wonderful friend called uh, Kelsey Worth who started a, uh, a charity called Mothers Out Front at her kitchen table because she thought mothers were, you know, one of the groups that really could see that something was really wrong and would get out and do things. And, and the whole thing about getting that off the ground is concretely what can a group of mothers do? And it turns out that there are gas leaks everywhere. And so what these mothers did is first they had dinner parties with each other. So, you know, talk like what's going on? What's the data? Okay, what can we do? Second, they went out and detected the gas leaks and put huge flags over them. Third, you know, they went to politicians and said, eh, you're leaking methane, which is A, bad for our health and B, causing climate change and C, wasting all this money. And, and now, I mean, now they have like 9,000 passionate mums like, 
going to hearings and doing stuff. But it, it starts with, I'm going to have a few friends over for dinner to talk about this. Or it really bugs me that we don't do any recycling at work. I'm going to try and fix that. And it, it, it has to start small because otherwise you sit at home thinking, well, I'm never going to be Martin Luther King. And there's no way. You know, in, in, in my book, I talk about we need an avalanche and the problem is we're only pebbles and that none of us is going to make a difference in the grand scheme of things. But together we could get an avalanche going. And, and so, you know, that's I think so many of us are not part of formal faith communities anymore. But that's one of the things that, that churches and synagogues and temples did and do is no, no. On Saturday, you will go and feed the homeless, <laughs> you know? um, and you're doing it with other people. So we need to find rituals that you know help and support us in this. I mean, the big reason not to feel despair—I don't know if this is a reason or not. Try it. Is that the situation is getting so bad <laughs> that um, people are really starting to notice? I mean, I spend a fair amount of time hanging out with reasonably very rich people and people who run very large corporations and they can see that something is really off like really off particularly climate change inequality is harder as you would guess but um, I mean I've I've met people who run trillions of dollars who are like oh climate change is going to destroy the planet we really should do something <laughs> so that, that's a, another reason to feel to feel optimistic. Another is, as far as I can tell from reading the literature on when big shifts happened in corporation in in societies and in you know in politics, it's either wars, not very cheerful, or it's people like us. It really is. This is what it feels like. Uh, it's small groups seemingly pushing against this firmly shut door, jumping up and down and screaming. But that, that's what got us, you know, votes for women. That's what got us votes for, uh, for people who don't look like the ruling class. Uh, so the, the, the scholars think it's about 5% of the society has to be really on fire. Lots of people won't have the confidence to act out on their own, but as soon as they see other people doing it, they're more likely to join along and make a movement there. And I think you see that happen a lot recently where you've got a small group of people started shouting about something and then everyone's like, oh, I've been thinking that, but I didn't mm -hmm. want to say it out loud. And then they come on and join join in on it. And it, yeah, it does take those group of people. That's Extinction Rebellion, I suppose, as it was started from that sort of small Absolutely. sprout. Yeah. But then but then equally the the um the movement to don't force me to wear a mask came from the same thing. So Absolutely. But that's another example. I mean the people who are really on the edge don't force me to wear a mask. I mean, they got a lot of people to go along with them. Um so these small, very vocal groups, I mean, one of the problems with COVID is it shut down the climate uh demonstrations, I think. Yeah, because you know, yeah. it really seemed like we were getting some some reinforcements on that. But are you are you seeing what's happening in Belarus, where it's exactly like you said, Adam? A few people said like, "Wait, this isn't working," and everyone else was like, "What? You don't think it's working for you either?" Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, suddenly they have these massive protests. So I, I think podcasts are important. I mean, I'm like you. I see. I I sit at my desk. I write papers. I give talks. I teach classes. I'm like, wait, the world is on fire. But every so often I'll get notes from people saying, I'm sure you get these notes all the time. Because I listened to a podcast, I decided to try something new. 
I decided to push a little. And that's all any of us can hope for, right? It's not like individually we're going to move 10,000 people to do something, um, I think. So it's the, I try and walk this line between, you know, monomania, I can save the world, and total despair, nothing I do will make any difference, you know, and try and find that in-between place. But you could potentially change the world in influencing someone else to go and do that. And I think that's it. It doesn't necessarily have to be you who's the person standing on that plinth giving that speech to everyone. If you can say one thing that inspires someone else and then they can get a group of people behind them and push that message too, or you've got thousands of people all pushing that message from different places and they come together, that's where it starts. So I feel like the important thing is just putting your voice out there and making what you believe kind of shown to the world? I, I absolutely agree. I mean, one of the exciting things about publishing this book is I've spent the last three and a half months on Zoom, mostly talking to people who are trying to change the world. There are tens of thousands of people trying that I just have personally talked to. <laughs> so there must be like yeah. many, many more, right? No, yeah. and, and people are so creative and everyone's trying a little different thing. They're trying to reach a different audience with a podcast or they're trying to help corporations, you know, really focus on this one issue around race or really focus on this one issue around wages or they're working in politics. I mean, there are so many people trying this. It, I, I can't describe how different the world feels to me than it did 35 years ago when I started teaching. You know, 35 years ago at a business school, we never talked about inequality or justice or purpose or meaning. I mean, absolutely not. <laughs> it just wasn't on the table. And now, I mean, so many of the students are so engaged. Um, I have students talking to me all the time saying, I want to make some difference in my life. And I have a job at Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or you, you name it. I'm not sure that's what I want to do. I think I want to do something else. I have students saying, I think I want to work for government or go into public service. It, maybe I'm just drinking too much Kool-Aid, but this feels like it could be a real moment of change, I guess is what I'm saying. And, and what we need to do is just keep pushing. And if we only need 5%, it, it feels doable. It, it doesn't feel impossible, right? 5% really turned on and really pushing and really engaged. I mean, this is not a great example. You won't like this. But one of the reasons our politics in the US are so disastrous is because 5% decided that free markets were the answer mm -hmm. to everything. And yeah. they would attack government and run it down and make people believe that, uh, you know... <laughs> that um, governments could never do anything and business should just make money. And, and it was way less than 5%. And they, they, they turned the whole society. Well, I mean, you've, you've got us behind you and, uh, and I think you'll have our listeners as well. Um, in honor of that, we're going to change the name of the podcast to Creative Pebbles. And, uh, <laughs> and we'll all join together and we'll start an avalanche. Rebecca, thank you so much. This has been one of my favorite chats that we've ever had and, um, and a really important one, I think. So, so thank you so much. David, thank you very, very much. Adam, thank you. You ask amazing questions. I know you know that. Um, it's really a pleasure talking to you. You've got me totally relaxed and really engaged. Thanks a lot. Oh, that's great. And for our listeners, uh, where can people find you online and where can people find out about the book? Uh, the book's online at reimaginingcapitalism.org. 
And I'm online at rebeccahenderson.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Brilliant. Thank you so much. No, thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.